Would you like to follow the reading in your Bibles? It's on page four. First chapter of Genesis. And it's verses 26 to 31. Page four of your Bibles. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our creation, for our preservation, and for all the blessings of this life. We thank you that our significance lies in our relationship with you, and may we fully appreciate that today. Amen. Well, many people today hold an atheistic view of the world. The universe has, in some way or other, always existed, though God does not exist. Human beings are just clever monkeys. Morality is largely a matter of personal choice and death is the end. Now by contrast, the Bible teaches that God does indeed exist, that he created the universe out of nothing and that he's clearly spoken and acted in history in a way that leaves us in no doubt about his character and his intentions. He's created human beings to know him and to love him Death is not the end, in fact it's really a gateway to two radically different futures. Either to enjoy eternity with God in a new and perfect world, or to be excluded from his presence forever. And within this big picture, this meta-narrative, to use a kind of contemporary kind of jargon, or perhaps better, a framework of understanding life, we have the four principal chapters of the earth, the universe's existence. It's creation. And then the fall, when it all went wrong. And redemption through Christ and recreation at the end of time. And we might call that the human journey. The journey from our beginning to our our end, from conception to death. Over the next few Sunday mornings, various people will be looking at questions such as, when does life begin? What is marriage for? How should I live? 
That's our physical health. Am I supposed to feel like this, our mental health? How should life end, euthanasia and palliative care? And what of the new technologies designed to keep us living longer? Are we playing God? And global health, who is my neighbour? It's loosely connected to a project which the Christian Medical Fellowship have of the same title. And there's plenty of interesting stuff on their website. This morning, though, we're going to look at what it means to be a human being. This is a very basic question, and it has both political and personal ramifications. Politically, we ask, do individuals have absolute value or merely just value in relation to the state? The answer to that question affects how different societies treat people. There's no doubt where Stalin and Mao's Russia and China were 70-odd years ago. They treated people as just commodities to achieve the end. You see, if we, only, if we are only of value to the state we live in, then it's bad news when it comes to moral issues such as abortion, infanticide, euthanasia, and political issues such as freedom of conscience, freedom of assembly and association and the like. And of course, personally, we ask questions such as, who am I? Do I have any meaning or significance? And we know that there is a restlessness to our lives unless we come to some conclusion, some answer to those questions. But let's begin this morning by trying to understand an alternative to the Christian worldview and expose some of its shortcomings. Introduce you to a word, speciesism. There's a guy called Peter Singer. I don't think he's the same guy who used to sing songs, but um, he, uh, he sort of popularised this in the 1970s and uh, into the 80s and 90s. And the concept is that people are speciesist when they discriminate or exploit animals on the basis that humans are, by definition, innately superior. The accusation is that this is unjust because superiority is not always true in individual cases. And the argument takes a classical utilitarian position that uh, human life, as such, does not have value but human life may be a receptacle for things that are of value. And these things include self-consciousness, rationality, rich, pleasurable experiences and relationships, and hopes for the future, albeit with a rather limited horizon. It then points out that animals experience some of these attributes. In 1995, Singer took a further step building on the evolutionary continuity between humans and other animals. He pointed out the similarity between humans and chimpanzees' DNA. In the mid-70s, scientists had stated that humans and chimps shared 99% of their genes, an estimate that's more recently been lowered to about 95%. But it doesn't matter. You know, chimps eat curries, humans eat bananas. 
He also quotes from a philosopher called John Locke from the 17th century, and Locke defined a person as a thinking, intelligent being that has reason and reflection and can consider itself as itself the same thinking thing in different times and places. So Singer concludes that most humans more than two years old fulfill this definition and are persons, but infants and severely brain-damaged people are not persons. At the same time, many other primates, chimps and gorillas qualify as persons by Locke's definition. So the one on your left is a person, the one on your right may not be, because he's under two, I'm guessing. He's not suggesting that all animals are of equal worth to all humans, but that humans have no unique claim to personhood or moral value. So for Singer, there are two main conclusions. First is that higher animals, the primates in particular, possess the same quality of personhood and moral worth as ourselves, albeit normally to a lesser degree. And they, they should therefore be afforded certain basic rights. And secondly, he calls us to recognise that the worth of human life varies. And he concludes that putting greater value on a severely brain-damaged human than on a normal chimpanzee is speciesist. As a corollary to this, he argues in favour of infanticide for disabled infants and of killing people with severe dementia and brain damage as long as their families are in agreement. Now, Professor John Wyatt calls Singer's argument corticalist, which is another kind of... Uh, word not used in everyday English, but he's pointing out that Singer has chosen to base his assessment of value on the functioning of an animal's cortex. The cerebral cortex is the brain's outer layer of neural tissues in humans and other primates, which is, well, where's my pointer? It's this kind of darker stuff that kind of is all on the if you take a sort of slice through your brain, then this is what the cross-section looks like. The darker bits are the cortex on the outside. And Professor Wyatt argues, why should the functioning of a five-millimeter layer of neurons be the central and only moral discriminating feature between beings? On purely logical grounds, species membership is a more coherent and fundamental basis for making ethical distinction between beings. But holding his view allows Singer to discriminate against individuals with, with poorly performing brains. Now this is simply introducing a new form of discrimination. Oh, sorry, I'm a bit behind myself. Um, and it's also remarkably fragile and continued. So this, uh, what he's saying is 
people who are in a position to draw boundaries always draw boundaries in ways that are favourable for their own success. He points out that if squirrels were given the ability to choose criteria for special treatment, presumably they'd choose agility and balance. If trees could choose, they'd opt for size and longevity. He flags up that it's also a very fragile kind of argument. At this moment, this is how he would argue, at this moment, as you listen to me, you are regarded as a person. But if when you walk out of church, a brick falls on your head, leading to cortical damage, you are no longer a person. Of course, if following rehabilitation, your cortical function recovers, then you become a person again. So he says, can something so fundamental as personhood be so fragile? Now on Singer's definition, it's not clear if a human being who is anaesthetised, comatose, intoxicated, delirious, psychotically confused or merely asleep remains a person. If a burglar came into your room at night and killed you painlessly in your sleep, would they have committed a crime? Singer and his colleagues answer this challenge by arguing that personhood is only lost if consciousness is permanently lost. But why on logical grounds should this be so? Suppose I suffer severe brain injury, but have the prospect of a gradual recovery to normal consciousness over the next 10 years. Am I a person in the intervening period? If someone kills me in my unconscious state, are they guilty of the serious crime of killing a person or the less serious crime of killing a non-person? You see, at the heart of this secular philosophical perspective is the idea that you earn the right to be called a person by what you can do, by demonstrating that your brain is functioning adequately by thinking and choosing. So how do we respond to that as Christians? What does it mean to be a person in the light of Christian revelation? And that's where we turn to our passage that we have this morning. Genesis 1, 26 to 31. And as we start to read about what happened on the sixth day, we notice that there's an immediate change from the other days. Up until the sixth day, each day starts with, and God said, let there be whatever, and things were done. Now it's no longer a command, but it's a soliloquy. God starts talking to himself about himself. Let us make man in our own image. He talks to himself about a proposed course of action. God resolves in verse 26 to do something, and then in 26 and 27 he does it, which is, of course, also incidentally evidence that there is plurality in the Godhead. God is three persons in a community of love. Now, this device of a Genesis writer Moses is pretty effective. It draws our attention to man's uniqueness, created by God, created in God's image or likeness, created by God as the climax of all creation. And nothing else is created after man is created. And in the next verse, 27, 
create is repeated for emphasis three times. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So where does our uniqueness lie? Well, we're not explicitly told, but these few verses, these couple of chapters at the start of the Bible do flag up that it's composed. The image being made in the image of God is about our relationship with God, being made in his likeness, our relationship to the earth, our dominion over it or our rule over it, and then we start to learn about our relationships with the opposite sex. Our equality as male and female are highlighted in Genesis 1, and our complementarity as male and female and marriage and the marriage relationship are covered in Genesis 2, which we'll look at in future weeks. This week, though, we're looking at our likeness to God and our rule over the earth. So, our likeness to God, you'll find in the outline. It doesn't mean that we are unlike animals. For example, all animals have the capacity to reproduce. As far as apes are concerned, Singer is right. They and we have this kind of 95% shared DNA sequences. We have very similar anatomy, physiology, and biochemistry. But we are nonetheless different. The 5% is very significant. Even though unkindly, as I kind of look around amongst clergy, I can certainly think one who must um, looks very similar to a silverback gorilla, and another one who shows definite signs with his sloping forehead of a chimpanzee, but I don't name them. Studying animals in captivity has led to a few claims that given the right conditions, chimps can learn to use rudimentary language skills. While it's harder to study them, there's evidence that whales and dolphins have a well-developed social function and systems of communication. But again, this uh, nature of this communication is a matter of dispute. People studying language claim that language is an innate capability that is hardwired into us humans. This inbuilt facility projects us into a world where we can perceive and create meaning. The communication system that people then use to express this innate ability, such as English, French, or sign language, is simply a tool that expresses what is an innate, hardwired capability. And while animals do communicate, it's hotly disputed whether they have this capacity for language or whether they can just use a very limited menu of messages. Being in the image of God doesn't mean that uh, it's because we are erect hominids. Oh, I got... Uh, oh. See? So gradually, in the process of evolution, people have become more upright, and then it stopped, as if that's the kind of reason why we're in the image of God. Now, we have five uh, qualities which are either exclusive to us 
or which we have to a vastly greater degree than other animals. So we are rational, we are able to think. In Genesis 1, God talks with himself. The word translated God in Hebrew is plural. He is self-conscious, he's able to self-reflect, he self-evaluates, and we're like him in that respect. Animals have brains, but they can't evaluate themselves objectively. Then there is the moral characteristic, our ability to choose. God is good and righteous. Man was in a state of original righteousness with a consciousness and a will able to discern and choose between right and wrong. Adam in Genesis 2.16 was able to choose and in Romans 2.14 reminds us that the moral law um, resides within us. We have a choice. We can go one way or the other. Animals can be trained to do things, but they have no concept of right and wrong. They behave by instinct. For example, studies of primates seem to suggest that they operate on some, with some very simple basic rules. If you're nice to me, I'll be nice to you. And if you're, not nice, if you're nasty to me, I'll be nasty to you. We are social beings. We are able to love. The divine pluralities reflected in human beings, let us make, let them. There's friendship between humans that animals know nothing of, even though they do pair off and some live in groups. Sex is not just an instinct for procreation. It expresses love, and human love derives from God's love. We are artistic. We are able to be created. It's claimed that some animals have an aesthetic appreciation, but nothing on the scale that human beings have. Birds have pre-programmed sounds. Humans, though, can create new songs out of phenomenological resources. There's evidence that animals can use, can create and use very basic tools, but they are just that, very, very basic. The use of a stick by a grizzly bear to get honey out of the hive, for example. But most distinctive and completely unique is our spirituality, that we are able to pray. Now, there were some hominids, some pre-homo sapiens, who may have buried their, their dead. But why they did, of course, we don't know. It may have just been to get rid of the smell. It is God who has put eternity in the hearts of man. Only we have an awareness of him. Only humans pray. So this is part of what makes us like God. We are rational, moral, social, artistic, and above all, spiritual beings. Another part, the part we're considering this week, not the, the male-female part of being in the image of God, the other part is that we have dominion over the earth. Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over every living creature. Now that's a delegated authority. God has the authority and he's delegated it to us. So we are over nature but under God. And we are to multiply and subdue it. And we're doing very well at multiplying. After all, in just over 100,000 years or so, we have gone from a handful to 7 billion. But subduing is a bit more mixed. We got off to a slow start, 
domesticating animals, discovering fire, inventing wheels. Then we had the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, the technological revolution. We can get to the moon and back, but only 1% of the land mass is cultivated. We have never worked out an economic way of desalinating seawater, which of course would transform deserts into fertile oases. Instead, we've mismanaged land by deforestation and lost it for agricultural production. Well, let's wrap this up. God is personal. The original uh, word in Greek literally means the face. But in ancient Greek, it also referred to the mask that actors used to represent the character that they were playing in the theatre. In Greek and Roman thinking, what mattered about an individual was the face that they showed to the world, the role they played in society. And we've retained that meaning when we refer to someone's persona. It's the public face they show to the world. It's interesting that that is how the word is used in the New Testament. At several points, God is described as one who shows no favoritism. Now, the literal Greek says that he is not a respecter of persons, meaning that he's not influenced by our external or social role. However, in Hebrew, in Hebrews 1 to 3, the Son is described as the exact representation of God's likeness, God's person. And a different word is used, hypostasis, which literally means what lies under. Now the early church fathers, as they reflected on the nature of the Godhead and the meaning of the Trinity, fastened on this word, hypostasis, to describe the three persons of the Trinity. That God's ultimate being, what lay under his activity, was in the form of persons persons giving themselves to one another in love. And as human beings are made in the image of God, we too are created as persons. We reflect God's nature in our personhood. We are created to give ourselves to God and to love one another. And relationship is vital. Just as the three persons of the Trinity are individually unique, yet give themselves continually in love. So each human person is unique, yet made for relationships with others. Personhood is not something we can have in isolation. In Christian thinking, it's a relational concept. It was uh, Descartes, the philosopher, who came up with the famous statement, I think, therefore I am. It's a definition which ultimately led to the writings of people like Singer. By contrast, we might suggest a Christian alternative. You love me, that's God, loving me, therefore I am. My being comes not from my rational abilities, but from the fact that I am known and loved, first of all by God himself, and secondly by other human beings. Ultimately, my personhood rests on the fact that God called me into existence and that he continues to know and love me. For Pete Singer, you earn the right to be called a person by what you can do. 
whether your cerebral cortex is functioning properly. But, but by Christian thinking, my personhood rests on who I am, on the fact that God has called me into existence and continues to know and love me. Human beings do not need to earn the right to be treated as godlike beings. Our dignity is intrinsic. It's, the, it's, it's in the stuff of our being, in the way God has made us and the way he knows and loves us. And this Christian understanding of personhood is much more permanent, is much more resilient than any secular one. As we saw with Singer, your personhood might disappear at any moment if your cortex starts to malfunction. But in Christian thinking, whatever happens to you in the future, whatever disease or accident might befall your central nervous system, even if you're struck down by dementia or enter a persistent vegetative state, you will still be you, a unique and wonderful person, known and loved by God. It's God's love, you see, that, gives, that preserves our identity throughout the whole of our lifetime. Whatever tragic and unexpected events may befall us, and on into eternity. And even when we were in our mother's womb, God was loving us and calling us into existence. As one theologian put it, he was with us in the womb as he will be with us in the tomb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the, the basis of all of this, it is because you love us and you have a relationship with us that gives us significance. We don't have to earn it. It is something you have created in us. It's innate. We are like you. And we thank you for that precious relationship. And we thank you that uh, it is one you have with us, whatever befalls us. And whatever might befall us adversely in this life will be rectified in the life to come. Amen. Amen.